Please pray with me again from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I need to give you some background for today's second reading. Otherwise, your takeaway may just be, there sure is some weird stuff in the Bible, which is true, but it's not the sort of truth that will sustain you through the week. So let's see if we can deepen it. We're in the book of Acts, which carries the invisible subtitle, Volume 2 of Luke. After the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus' life on earth, ending with his ascension into heaven, the book of Acts picks up, plunging us into the development of the church that Jesus has launched. Same author, different phases of the great ongoing saga of the Christian faith. As Acts opens, Disciples who knew Jesus before and after his resurrection have now witnessed his ascension and find themselves participating in the fulfillment of his parting words, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Sure enough, there are almost immediately thousands of new believers in Jerusalem and Judea. Some who flee persecution end up making converts in Samaria. We have the beautiful story of the Ethiopian eunuch asking to be baptized and thus carrying the faith to a whole new continent. And we have this weird story of Peter's vision leading to his dinnertime visit with Cornelius, who is a Gentile. So a word about Jews and Gentiles eating together. We modern Americans may choose not to eat meat or not to eat gluten, to limit salt or sugar, to focus on raw veggies or lean protein or local organics or fat-free half and half, whatever that is. <laughs> we make these determinations based on health concerns or personal preference, but for the Jews, Dietary restrictions were a matter not of individual decision, but of cultural identity. And for a small society of believers in an increasingly pluralistic world, the erosion of God-given identity was a real and present danger. I think I hear a hint of that feeling when some of you speak aloud your worries that today's children may not know the great hymns of our tradition. One final introductory note. This text should not be heard as rejecting the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. His first disciples were Jews. And what we call Christianity began as a Jewish sect. I remember in seminary, someone asking, What's the difference between a sect and a cult? And our professor replied, a cult is a sect you don't like. <laughs> and that's another thing that's going on here, how Christianity will be understood from within and from without. So, for the entirety of chapter 10, Luke has been sharing details of a strange episode in which Peter, the most prominent of the disciples, eats 
with Gentiles and even baptizes them. Then, in chapter 11, Peter is asked to explain himself back at headquarters. And so this strange episode is carefully told all over again, its full repetition highlighting how important the story is. So now here, chapter 11, verse 1 through 18, from the Acts of the Apostles. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? And then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. And then everything was pulled up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered Cornelius's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord Jesus, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that God gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And then they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I took time for all that background material in hopes of helping you hear how this peculiar episode is a key development in the unstoppable, unhinderable progress of God's will toward all people. I also hope you heard how that gracious will can sweep individuals, Peter, Cornelius, you, up into its loving purposes because I think we are here touching upon three beliefs that matter to us and that we yearn to see borne out in reality. 
First, the belief that God is still actively at work in the world, doing a new thing that's been promised and revealed, remembered and anticipated across millennia. Second, there's the belief that we, like Peter and Cornelius, might be of use to God in this work. And third, there's the belief that God will ultimately prevail despite all the opposition that humans offer up, consciously or otherwise. In other words, God will not be hindered. Reading this story of our ultimately unhindered God takes me back to 2015, when the Supreme Court declared that the American Constitution guarantees the right of same-sex marriage. At that time, I was serving in Noonan, Georgia, a community where that decision was not well received. Much as Morningside's congregation leans toward the progressive points of view while also embracing a significant faithful minority who are more conservative, Noonan's congregation leans toward the conservative but embraces a significant minority who are more progressive. Our denomination had ruled that every session would, would decide whether or not to allow same-sex weddings to be held in their particular sanctuary. So Noonan's session formed a task force to discern and recommend a course of action. Part of our task force process was to solicit input from the congregation, and we got it. There were the of courses and the of course nots and everything in between. Today, almost four years later, one of the letters written to the task force stays in my memory. It was written by a woman who drives an 18-wheeler for a living, tracing the highway from Atlanta to the port of Savannah and back on an almost daily basis. She lives in a little, little house with her mother and her daughter, and from the three of them I learned so much and not all of it was about trucking. She sent the task force a long, handwritten letter detailing her struggle with the topic of homosexuality. She explained how she had searched diligently through Scripture, pulling out the much-cited proof texts, studying them, and eventually concluding, okay, but... We're called to follow Jesus, not Paul. And then she wrote about the passage she identified as the revelation that had cleared up the whole matter for her. She said, you know, when Jesus is hanging there on the cross with a thief to the left and a thief to the right, and one of them says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus does not respond, well, let's see about that. I mean, first, you're going to have to tell me how you've lived your life. The task force prayed over that and over all the other feedback. We argued with each other. We wept with each other. And we finally gave session the recommendation that the timing was not right for Noonan Presbyterian to host same-sex weddings. While all of that was going on, the very first 
openly gay couple ever to worship at that wonderful church started worshiping there on a regular basis. As best I can tell, this was probably the most overt act of the Holy Spirit that I've ever witnessed, and she was not playing around. One of these men is a former active-duty army chaplain, and one of them can more than hold his own in the conversation that is Noonan's favorite topic, college football. Plus, they come closer than just about anybody I've ever known to living out the commandment that Emma read to us. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the midst of their church's difficult discernment and difficult decision, this couple led the way in persevering in that commandment, embodying the grace, courage, strength, and yes, love that flow from the God about whom we should all be saying, who am I that I should hinder God? And yet, church, sometimes I feel like God is being hindered all over the place. The General Conference of the United Methodist Church recently voted to condemn homosexuality, prohibiting same-sex marriages and the ordination of LGBTQ individuals. My heart breaks for those dislocated by this decision, and my heart breaks for those who seek to hinder the loving expansiveness of God. From within our congregation, well known for its inclusiveness, it may be tempting to think that God is already unhindered. I mean, there's a woman in the pulpit. Sexism must surely be over. We have LGBTQ elders and deacons and staff. Prejudice must surely be over. Our nation elected its first African-American president. Racism must surely be over, but we can't let ourselves be that naive. On the other hand, it may be tempting to think that God is hindered terminally hindered. There's another school shooting, another Ebola outbreak, another uptick in the suicide rate, especially among girls ages 10 to 14. Sometimes I worry that God is being hindered all over the place, but we can't let ourselves be that cynical because throughout the two-volume saga of Luke and Acts, there runs evidence of God as ultimately unstoppable, unhindered. Way back at the beginning of the first volume of this epic, an angel of the Lord says to an astonished young woman named Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. As the gospel then proceeds to show God's promises fulfilled in Mary's son Jesus, the author adopts the Greek word kaluo, which we translate as hinder. And this author uses that word more than all the other biblical authors combined. So we will hear it in a few minutes in the baptism. Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That's Luke 18, 16. We hear it in today's text, who was I that I should hinder God? 
And were we to read the book of Acts all the way to its conclusion, we would hear the word again and again. It is even Luke's literal last word to us. In describing the work of the Apostle Paul, it's the last word of the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Acts. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and with no hindrance. So here is the truth I pray will sustain us throughout this week and beyond. God is still at work in the world and eager for us to be of use in that work. And despite whatever opposition humans may offer, consciously or otherwise, God will prevail unhindered. Thanks be to God.